Hello. Thank you for coming. My name is Kathy Reiselwitz. Every month I've gotten to introduce one of my friends to speak to us, but this month I get to introduce one of my best friends in the world. This is Mike Tanner. He came to speak to us from Washington, D.C. He is a senior fellow at FreeOp, which is a think tank in D.C., and he focuses on poverty, inequality, welfare. That's his whole job is studying these questions. And today he's going to speak to us about the policies that actually make a meaningful difference in rates of homelessness. So please welcome my friend, Mike Tanner. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, by the way, is it okay for me to talk even if Tommy Tupperville objects? <laughs> Actually, it is, it's a real thrill to be here, and I, I really appreciate the group, and I appreciate Kathy's work. As so many first-timers I've met here who told me that this is the first time that they've been here, and uh, that's terrific. And I do recommend you, you talk to Kathy. You're not going to find a smarter person or a better activist than, than she is. And you want to get something done in this town, uh, she's a place to start for, for all these things. So I really think you ought to uh, weigh into her. We're going to talk about a chipper, upbeat topic tonight, homelessness. Uh, and it is a growing problem everywhere in the country. It is. I will say that I'm not an expert on Huntsville or Huntsville homelessness or anything like that. If you wanted to get down into the really deep weeds, again, talk to Kathy, not me, on, uh, on things like that. But I'm going to try and talk to you a little bit about what we know nationwide and what the research shows on what works and what does not work, which is equally important on these issues. Because I think that the pop most popular solutions suggested by both the, the left and the right on these issues are not nearly as successful as some more common sense pro proposals that I think that people on both sides of the aisle could probably join together and get behind. So let's, let's just weigh in right away and start digging into the problem of homelessness and what we might do about it. The most important thing I think you can do right at the start is differentiate between the two groups of people who are homeless, who are living without housing right now. And they are very different groups, very different segments, and they have to be addressed in very different ways. The most visible group of people who are homeless are people who have substance abuse problems or the mentally ill. And those are the people you're most likely to encounter on the corner or living in tent camps and places like that. They are the people who tend to get the city most riled up and worked up about what to do. And they do tend to generate quality of life issues for the, for the city at large in terms of, of crime, in terms of uh, health, in terms of the, uh, the uh, cleanliness of the area and, and all the problems that the city gets so excited about. They make up a small, much smaller group of the homeless than you might think. Uh, in general, probably about uh, about 25 to 40 percent of the of the population has either a mental health problem or a substance abuse problem. And I and I speak about it broadly because there's a great deal of overlap between the two groups. There's also something of a problem with sort of measuring this because there's a chicken and egg problem, if you will. Uh, you know, living a life on the street sucks. And a lot of people deal with that problem by self-medicating, by taking drugs. Even if they did not have a substance abuse problem before they fell to the street, uh, they, they tend to take drugs after they're on the street because that's how you get through the night. 
And whether or not you take drugs or not, you're more likely to develop mental illness after you're on the street as well. You also have a bit of a problem determining whether the substance abuse problem or the mental illness is the reason why they ended up on the street or was it a subset of other problems that they were undergoing. If you actually survey people and you ask them why you're on the street, only about 15% of people say that I'm on the street because, for example, that I have a substance abuse issue. It was my drinking or my drug taking that led me to be on the street. But if you dive in more, de in more detail, well, they had a criminal record because they got arrested for drugs and that made them get thrown out of their apartment. Or they lost their job because they didn't show up for a few days and things like that. So they talk about it being a, a job problem, but the reality is that there was a problem with uh, their substance abuse that led to that. So all these sort of things, factors kind of mix into these things. And I would say that when you're dealing with people with substance abuse issues or mental illness issues, you're going to have to deal with them in a very different way than the second group of people, which is actually the most populous, which is people who simply fell to the street because they couldn't find affordable housing. These are, these are um, it might interest people, for example, just to know that about more, slightly more than half of people who are living on the street are actually employed. They actually have jobs. Now, in some of the cases, it's a part-time job. In most cases, it's a very low-wage job. But you'll find others that have substantial jobs and are living on the street, particularly homeless, when you're talking about homeless families and so on. I, I just spent about three years in California working with them on their homeless problem. They've got about half of all the unhoused homeless in the country out there, one of the biggest homeless problems you're likely to find. And among the people I interviewed out there, I interviewed state employees, teachers, emergency room nurses, all these folks who were uh, living on the street, living in their car, living in tents, because they essentially if you have housing costs that are way too expensive for anybody to live in, and then you have a problem, that problem, you know, you have a health problem. Have someone in your family get sick. Uh, you have a problem, you lose your job, you get laid off. Uh, any number of problems that can occur, you f there's no place for you to fall to. There's no cheaper apartment that you can find. When you live in a state that has a, the cheapest apartment is about $2,500 for a one-bedroom or $3,000 for a one-bedroom, uh, even if you can find something, let's say you've managed to squeeze in and find something for $2,000 and suddenly you're out of work, where are you going to go? And you end up on the street. These are people who will require a very different set of circumstances to get them out, all off the street and get them in housing than the mentally ill people or the substance abuse people we were talking about earlier. So you want to look at these different groups in different ways as you get going. And I think too often we sort of lump everybody together and it's also kind of dehumanizing to lump everybody all together. And we kind of talk about the homeless population. And then, uh, you know, if we're going to be more politically correct with this, then we start talking about the unhoused, for example, or things like that. But the reality is we tend to lump everybody together uh, regardless of their circumstances. And we need to actually begin to look at people as individuals and what their individual circumstances are as we do this. I also think we need to start off by looking at what doesn't work because they're often the most popular solutions, the easiest solutions in both cases, or sort of the, the glib solutions, if you will, from the left and right, are not as successful as we might think. On the left, the, the solution is housing now, uh, or with companion piece, permanent supportive housing uh, for the homeless. Uh, years ago, homeless, when we dealt with the homeless, there was sort of a tiered way of dealing with it. You dealt with shelter overnight because obviously it was very important to get people off the street. You know, it might be it's still chilly down here in Huntsville, but if you live up north in Boston or someplace or Buffalo, 
you need to get people off the street or they die. And the answer was you put them in shelters briefly, then you moved on to transitionary housing, which often accompanied with various services like uh, substance abuse treatment or mental health problems or job search and training, things of that nature. And then finally, you tried to move them into permanent housing. Now we sort of have dumped all the, for the first, at least the first couple of parts of that, leap over it and put people in permanent housing, subsidized housing forever. That tends to not work for a couple of reasons. One is that for those people who out there who need assistance, who need substance abuse treatment, who need mental health treatment, they don't necessarily get it. In many, some cases, it's not offered. In fact, most cases, it's not even offered. The idea is simply put them in a place, we'll pay the rent for good, and we'll keep the people in, in that location. The result is, if you look at over time, they tend to drop out and they tend to move back to the street eventually because the underlying problems are never addressed. The second part of that is it actually tends to make take affordable housing off the market because that housing that was the most affordable is the housing that can be subsidized and they tend to take the subsidized units off the market. So you're dealing with people who've already fallen the street, we're gonna put them into the low cost housing and the people who are trying to find low cost housing, there's fewer units available for those, for those folks to get into. So you're actually not making housing more affordable, you're actually driving it up for the people who are buying, paying for housing and then you're just subsidizing it for people who were on the street previously. So it's not gonna be nearly as successful, I think, as people, people tend to believe, even though it's a, sort of the catchphrase of the day. If you look at the new proposal, the $9 billion proposal that the Biden administration just put out, all of that money is earmarked for, for, for housing first. If you look at California, almost all the housing money is earmarked for housing first. That's why they're basically buying up old hotels and putting people in the hotels and stuff like that. You also, even for the people who need help, who have the substance abuse problems and so on, lumping everybody together in, in these, uh, these large complexes, these large uh, housing first units can make it worse. I mean, imagine if you're trying to get off of whatever substance abuse you're having and right next door, they, they put the local dealer in the, in the room next door to you uh, causes problems uh, and, and can, can certainly make the matters worse. So that's on the left, and I suggest that, that we move away from that. The right's answer is simply lock everybody up. Send in the cops, preferably with a bulldozer, and we'll get rid of those tent encampments, and we'll, you know, we'll put them in jail for the weekend, and then we'll let them out, and they'll what? So there's no place to go. You've simply made the problem worse. Uh, what you've done is you've taken them out of the circulation for a couple of days so that they've lost their identification, their medication. Uh, if they have a partner, they, they've lost their partner or the partner's now on their own, where especially for women on the street, the sexual abuse is endemic. Uh, so you've simply made that problem worse. Then a couple of days later, you let them out of jail and you send them back there with no ID, no medication, unable to find their community. Uh, I'm not sure how you've made that situation any better. I mean, I can understand, you know, the mayor's office that doesn't want a homeless camp in their downtown. It does create problems. Uh, it's more likely, by the way, that the homeless are victims of crime than that they, than that they commit crime. Several times more likely that they're victims of crime than that they commit crime. But there's no doubt that crime does go up in the areas where you have large concentrations of homeless, particularly petty crime, smash and grab, shoplifting, 
cars broken into, that sort of thing. They're they're not running giant, you know, fentanyl rings or things like that. They are uh, it's petty theft, but that does go in the area, and that does cause problems for local businesses and and so on. Businesses, by the way, complain too much. Uh, you go to California, and they'll all tell you that they clo- had to close all these. Uh, you know, Walmart had to close because of uh, petty theft and because of the homeless population out in the streets there. The reality was it's because of in the wake of the pandemic, the downtown simply have huge amounts of vacancies and people aren't using this, the shopping the same way they were before. And the homeless are a convenient excuse for a lot of the problems that, that go on. Uh, so you're not going to get there by locking them up. In fact, if you actually look at surveys of the, of the homeless population, what you find is that they tell you that they're approached by police all the time. They're constant. They're, in fact, most towns have ordinances against sitting on the street, sleeping on the street, camping on the street, so on. They're constantly harassed by, hassled by the police that then move them to a new location. We take them out of this Park A and we move them over to Park B and we solve the homeless problem. There's no evidence at all to suggest that police are an effective unit, uh, effective at dealing with the problems. They're not effective dealing, we know, with substance use problems. They're not effective dealing with mental health issues. They're not trained in that. And the police will tell you themselves. They have no training in dealing with people with mental health issues. They have no training in how to deal with the homeless population. So sending them in, I mean, they are simply a simply blunt force. And uh, that's not what the population needs. So neither the preferred solution of the left nor the preferred solution of the right have any track record of success uh, in, in dealing with the underlying problem of homelessness people who are unhoused or living in homelessness. What does work? Well, I have a couple of ideas that out there that do show, uh, show some level of success uh, that we can, we can actually measure uh, the numbers on and, and show that they do work. The first of these is make housing cheaper. This should be common sense, and the evidence does suggest out there there's overwhelming effects. Studies done by everybody, from the Congressional Budget Office, the Office of Management and Budget, uh, several universities, uh, and numerous studies out there that show that about a it's about a one percent increase in rent leads to a one percent increase in homelessness. And the reverse is also true. You drop rents by one percent, you can take people off the street. And again, rather than dealing with people who are already on the street, this is to keep people from falling from the street, falling through the, the cracks and falling out. Um, to the street out there. Just to give you an example of how you can't defeat it by sort of dealing only with the people on the street now, in California, in LA, about 2,000 people leave this homelessness every month, that they find housing, they get off the streets. About 3,000 fall to the street every month. So the situation, until you deal with that spigot, turn off that spigot, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So you've got to lower the cost of housing. Now, what's the best way to lower the cost of housing? Build, yes. And how do you build more housing? Get rid of exclusionary zoning. Again, study after study shows that a huge portion of the cost of housing is actually zoning laws and other regulations that go with it. These laws, many of which were designed, by the way, uh, back in the early part of the 20th century for exclusively racist pu- proposals designed to keep uh, blacks to their community and keep them out of white communities, and still do that today uh, in many areas of the, of, the, of the country. They still do that. 
but they they add about 10 to 50 percent to the cost of housing, depending on the uh, where you are and how strict those regulations are. You're not ever going to solve the problem of high cost housing if you don't deal with the problem of overregulation of housing, and that starts with exclusionary zoning. You can look at other things. You can look at impact fees. You can look at environmental regulations. You can look at a host of other regulations that add to the cost. But zoning is going to be number one. You're going to have to deal with that. The second is to deal with those problems, those people who have problems uh, because of mental illness and substance abuse. You're going to have to strengthen conservatorship laws. Now, remember I said throwing people in jail, policing people is not the answer to people who have those type of problems. You're not. That's not solving the problem. But you do have to find a way to deal with people who are not incapable, for whatever reason, of helping themselves. They're a danger to themselves. They're a danger to others. They're not capable of making relevant decisions in their own lives for various reasons. Most states, in fact, I think 48 of the 50 states, have conservatorship laws on the books that make it possible to direct someone else's interests for them. But those are generally fairly weak and they're not generally applicable in the case of homeless populations. What we need to do is strengthen those laws and direct them specifically for how they can best de deal with the people who are homeless. We have to do this very carefully. Conservatorships and psychiatric treatment, mandatory psychiatric treatment have been abused in the past. We know that they've been abused for recalcitrant women and children, LGBTQ populations. People who are politically uh, unpopular at various times have been locked up in, in mental institutions. In fact, didn't um, President Trump just say recently he wants to lock up Jack Smith in an institution, wants to institutionalize him for things like that? So obviously, and you don't have to be a Britney Spears fan to see how you know the uh, conservatorships have been abused over the years, things of that nature. So we got to deal with conservatorship. One of the best ideas that I've seen recently is just coming out of California. It's called a conservatorship court. And what this says is a relative or a first responder can refer to a person to the conservatorship corp if the person's on the street and, the pop, and they're not able to make decisions for themselves and they're believed to be a danger to themselves or others. When they go to the conservatorship court, they are provided with a public defender to represent their interests. So there's always someone out there looking after them, not just trying to get them off the street. The court can then mandate a course of treatment. It can mandate that they go into uh, treatment for substance abuse. It can mandate that they have mental health treatment. It can even institutionalize them if necessary. But there's always some, they always, the um, individual has the right to refuse the treatment, in which case then they go back and they go through the procedure again, and then it can be mandated that they have to, they have to take it. But this is a way of enforcing that people, that they get take care of themselves, that they're that they get the treatment they need, but it's always important to, to recognize that their interests are being protected by someone else that's not just being thrown off to, in the street. Third, and this should be a big surprise, if you're going to require that people get housing or you're going to require that people get treatment, uh, you have to provide it. It doesn't do any very good to say, get off the street if you don't have any beds for housing, for, for, for dealing with this. It doesn't do any good to say, you have to get mental health treatment but you don't have any mental health treatment available. It doesn't do any good to say we're going to do, provide mandatory substance abuse treatment. You got, if you've got a substance abuse problem, we're going to require you to get treatment. And there's a six-month or a year wait before you can get into the treatment center. You have to invest in these services, and that's going to cost money, but the return on investment is going to be very high 
in terms of dealing with it. So you're going to have to deal with people in, in regards to that. And finally, I think you have to look at this in terms of the overall, of overall poverty. You're going to have to address the larger issue in this country of poverty and the fact that there's people who can't make it on what, what they earn and the problems that lead to poverty over the long run. You're going to have to deal with that because as long as you have people living on the very edge where any disruption can throw them into the street, you're going to have this growing homeless problem. You can bring down the cost of housing, that's fine. But you're going to have to deal with education. You're going to have to deal with criminal justice, the problem that one out of every five Americans is a criminal record that makes it more difficult for them to get a job or to get into housing if it's available or to get an education. You're going to have to deal with a lousy school system, public school system, that leaves people unprepared for jobs and so on. You're going to have to deal with all of these issues over the long term. I think that, you know, there's no doubt that there's a huge human tragedy that goes with homelessness. About 8,000 homeless people every year die on the street. It's about 20 a day that die because we didn't take care of them. At the same time, there's an enormous cost imposed on communities. Healthcare costs, because the homeless are more likely to come up with any number of, of severe illnesses. Crime, loss of economic opportunity, all of these things that go with homelessness. We have to address this issue, but you're not going to address it through slogans. You're not going to address it through quick fixes or things that feel good. You're going to have to invest in real solutions. And I think that's what the research shows so far. Anyway, with that, I'll thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions anybody has. Yeah, question from the back. Yeah, the relative breakout is about 60% are people who fall to the street, maybe more, and about somewhere between 25 to 40% are people who have substance abuse or mental health issues. As I say, there's a lot of overlap, and it's hard to pin it down exactly, but I would say somewhere around two-thirds, probably, of the, of the homeless population are people who uh, simply can't afford housing, and the other third are people who have other, other problems that led them there. Yeah, the question was on universal basic income, and especially in light of what's coming in terms of automation and AI and things of that nature. I've looked at this for a long time, and I have mixed minds about it. One is, if you look back in history, we've been told repeatedly that this new technological advance is going to throw everybody out of work. What happens when the farm, you know, we don't need that many people on the farms anymore. Everybody's moving to the city where everybody's going to, people starve. Uh, what happens uh, when we... Um, do these steam engines instead of having women that, that they loom themselves. Everybody's going to have be out of a job. What do we do now? We always seem to come up with something new to replace those folks with. In fact, in 1937, Lynn, uh, Franklin Roosevelt actually cut grants to the National Endowment for Sciences uh, because he didn't want to create any more scientific inventions that would lead to a loss of jobs. So, uh, so we, we've heard this before. On the other hand, you look at it, the, when the self-driving car is perfected, uh, Elon Musk or not, uh, when the self-driving car is perfected, about 2 million jobs go away. Truck drivers, taxi drivers, things like that, those jobs go away. What do we replace them with? Every, not everybody's going to become a computer programmer overnight type of thing, so we are going to have a problem with that. So there certainly has to be, we have to find solutions for what's going to happen in the changing economy. Uh, economic disruption, I'm, I'm a believer great believer in Schumpeter and the idea that you know, creative destruction is good for economic growth and good for the economy overall. But some people do get left behind. 
Um, if you look at it, um, you know, when we went from the, uh, you know, from buggies to automobiles, if you were a buggy whip manufacturer, you didn't benefit. Society as a whole did. We're all better off because we had cars rather than buggies. Well, now, you know, at the time we were, certainly. Uh, but if you were the best damn buggy whip manufacturer in the world, you still lost your job. And you were not better off. So we've got to find ways to deal with those, those folks uh, overall. One more, and then, then I'll let you guys get to real fun stuff like drinking. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If you want to look at the two leading theories for why people are poor, on the right and in certain areas of academia and stuff, it's, there's, there's this, basically people are poor because they made bad choices and decisions in their life. A lot of this is based on something called the success sequence, which is the idea, and statistically this is true. If you get, um, if you graduate high school at least, if you get a job, any job, and you don't have children until you're married or don't have children at all, you're unlikely to be poor. And if those three, statistically, I, I can show you the correlation, those three circumstances are true. Very few people who follow all three of those rules uh, end up in poverty, at least, especially not for any length of time. On the other hand, we all know that our choices are made within the constraints of the real world that we live in. And if you live in an area that has lousy schools, there's no jobs, where the police hassle you every time you set foot outside your door, you're going to end up making a very different set of decisions than somebody who grows up in, the, in some of the white suburbs with, uh, with good schools and lots of uh, employment opportunities and very different treatment uh, by society at large. So I think we have to take both into account and, and recognize that these things do play off of each other and there's sort of a cycle that works together uh, on these issues. And, that, and yeah, I, I do think there's kind of a belief out there among certain populations that poverty is a moral failing. Uh, and it's not. All right, everybody go have a drink. Talk to Kathy about what you need to do in Huntsville. And uh, glad I got the chance to meet you all. Thank you very much. What he said. Thank you.